And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. We've got these interim verses between these two parables, and I want to start with this. Do we have uh, Frank and Ernie up there? Yeah, this, you remember Frank and Ernie, the, the cartoon? Uh, it shows these perpetual blunders standing there at the pearly gates, and you can see St. Peter with the keys to the kingdom. He's got kind of a scowl on his face, and Frank's leaning over to Ernie, and Ernie looks quite happy, but you see what his T-shirt says? Question authority. And Ernie leans over, I mean, Frank leans over and says, if I were you, I'd change my shirt, Ernie. Right? Americans generally aren't inclined toward submission to authority. Uh, not even when that authority is God. Now, like Ernie, woo, hello. Like Ernie, we could easily end up at those pearly gates wearing that T-shirt, question authority, but that's probably not an advisable thing to do. Now, our text deals with the authority of Jesus. Now, the flow is somewhat difficult to track. At first, it may just seem like a bunch of disjointed verses that are unrelated. Verse 14 mentions the Pharisees scoffing at Jesus' teaching about money, but then money's not mentioned again. The final verse of the section there in verse 18 is on divorce, and it seems totally foreign to the context. Now, probably what we're looking at here is a condensed version of what was originally a longer discourse. The transitions are missing, and so when you take just the major points of those, of that, the in-between, it's hard to piece together. But the overall theme has to do with the authority of Jesus and God's Word uh, versus the self-proclaimed authority of the Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus and God's Word. Now, they would have protested that they were actually keeping the law, but uh, Jesus brings in the word about divorce there at the end to show them an example of how they only keep the law when it fits what they want to do. When it doesn't fit, they basically change the rules. They invent ways to dodge the truth. So while the outcasts are flocking into the kingdom, the Pharisees who thought they were the kingdom... They're being cast out, condemned by the very law that they proclaimed to follow. Now, to paraphrase uh, Jesus here, this is just a paraphrase, but, but I want you to hear it. It says, you Pharisees pride yourselves on keeping the law, but God knows your hypocritical hearts. What you're missing is that the old dispension came to a climax in John's ministry since he introduced the good news of the coming of God's king and kingdom. Ironically, while you are scoffing at me and my kingdom, the very ones you despise, the poor and the notoriously sinful, are stampeding to get in. When I say that there has been a transition from the law to the gospel, I don't mean that the law is set aside. Rather, it has been fulfilled in me. For example, I uphold the true intent of God's law regarding divorce and remarriage. But you Pharisees neatly set it aside with your liberal interpretations. All right, that's just, that's just a, uh, another way of saying these verses that might help it make a little bit more sense. The issue at stake here is the authority of Jesus versus the self-proclaimed authority of the Pharisees who were scoffing at Him. Now, the message for us is since God's kingdom comes in the person of Jesus 
we must submit to his authority. It's that simple. Not scoff at it like the Pharisees. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just come before you this morning to say thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Uh, Lord, I, I, Brother Kenneth is just heavy on my mind, so I pray that even now you would speak peace into his heart, into our hearts, knowing that in the long run this was all part of your plan. Miss Dorothy has lived, lived a long, fulfilling life and has left a wonderful legacy. And so... God, I just pray for this family that is left behind, that you would just give them strength over the next days and months ahead, Father, as they adjust to Miss Dorothy not being here. And Father, for us this morning, in the moment, we pray for clarity of thought, and we pray for your discernment that your Spirit gives us, that we can see truth from falsehood, and we can see Jesus for who He really is. And I pray that in the end, we would be drawn to Him. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, God's kingdom comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to keep in mind that both John the Baptist as the forerunner and Jesus after him were taking on a powerful uh, religious and cultural establishment. The Jewish religious leaders had great influence and power over the common people. They were the educated ones. They were the sole interpreters of God's laws. They controlled the activities in the temple, including the sale of animals for sacrifice. The common people feared being put out of the temple by, or out of the synagogue, synagogue or temple, by the Jew- Jewish uh, leaders. Even the Roman governor, Pilate, he feared the Jewish leaders. Do you remember? He crucified Jesus because they asked him to when he knew that Jesus was innocent. But Jesus is confronting these religious tyrants head on. He hits them for their hypocrisy. He hits them for missing the central message of the law and the prophets. What does Jesus mean when he, mean when he says law and the prophets? What's he referring to? The Old, what we call the Old Testament is Scripture. It's summarized as the law and the prophets. And, and so what, what the law and the prophets, what the Old Testament was pointing to was the good news of, kingdom, of the kingdom announced by John and personified in Jesus himself. So he's, he's pitting his authority, backed by God's word, against the authority of the Jewish religious leaders. This is no small thing that Jesus is doing. All right, so A, Jesus' authority is established by the unchanging word of God. Jesus upheld the sanctity of God's written word. Do you remember in the wilderness, uh, Jesus was driven there, and for 40 days he fasted, and then Satan come to him, came to him, and when he was tempted by Satan, what did Jesus say every time? Three temptations, what did he say three times? Three simple words, it is written, and he quoted Scripture. That silenced Satan, think about that. This is the most powerful and dreadful enemy of righteousness. And he was silenced with the Word of God. Now, Jesus asserted that God's Word is truth. In John 17, 17, as part of the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father. and He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. It just doesn't get much plainer than that. In John 5, 39, he, he told the Jewish leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. He continued with them. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus plainly affirmed God's word as truth. Now in our text, Jesus affirms that a a transition has taken place from the law and the prophets to the gospel of the kingdom. Now clearly, Jesus represents a new phase in God's program. What the law and the prophets proclaimed and and promised uh, throughout the Old Testament, it found fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was kind of a transitional figure. He had a foot, if you will, in both eras. eras, eras. Uh, he was a messenger who prepared the way of the Lord and was prophesied by Malachi. Now, Jesus is the Lord uh, in human flesh, that long-awaited Messiah, born of the seed of the woman who came to crush the, sa- the uh, serpent's head. But Jesus makes it clear that even though a a transition has taken place, it didn't nullify or set aside the law. He says it would be easier for all creation to pass away than for one stroke. Now there's the the word that threw me. In the ESV, it's dot. Okay, in in the the NASB, it's stroke. And I knew it was dot. And when I read stroke, I went, I got the wrong Bible. It doesn't matter. The stroke or the dot... It refers to an extension on a Hebrew word that distinguishes it from another Hebrew word that looks just like it except for this stroke. If the stroke's not there, it's not the same word. Okay? Now, his point is that what God spoke through Moses and all the prophets will be fulfilled down to the minutia. Nothing is going to be missed. God's word, as Jesus says in in John 5, 39, bears witness to him. Now, the relationship between the Old Testament law and the present age of grace, it, it's a little complicated. Some might consider it difficult. Some, such as Lewis Sperry Schaefer, argue that Paul's pronouncement that we are no longer under law but under grace, that's Romans 6.14, to him that means that no part of the Old Testament applies directly to believers today. Now, he would not view the Ten Commandments as binding whatsoever on Christians today. Others, called theonomists or reconstructionists, they go in the opposite direction. They say that we are obliged to live under the law, even those laws that pertain directly to the nation of Israel. So they go to the other extreme. Now, I think both of those views are out of balance. I would go along with the general Reformed view that the moral law of God stems from His holy nature. It actually reveals who God is. And therefore, it's eternally in force. God's nature is not going to change. The ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law, that pointed pointed ahead to Christ who fulfilled them in His person and work. So having been fulfilled, those laws are now abrogated. They're now set aside. They don't apply to us anymore. The civil aspects of the law, uh, they applied specifically to the theocratic nation of Israel. Now, there may be uh, plenty of principles for secular government that can be derived from those laws, but they're not binding on nations today. Now, despite your view on the believer's relationship to the Old Testament law, you got to understand this. No person in any age 
could ever be right before God by keeping the law. Since we've all violated God's holy standards in thought and in deed. So the law, no matter what you think about the Old Testament law, the law, it's designed to be, as Paul says, our tutor that leads us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So by Christ's perfect righteousness, He fulfilled the law so that the end of the law, He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But even after a person is justified by faith in Christ, the law continues to show God's holy standard for life and for conduct. The point is, although the law came to complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ, it is not simply just set aside. Those who are in Christ should delight in God's law as an expression of His holy nature. So Jesus' high view of Scripture should motivate us to be more diligent in searching out the truths that God has revealed there. When God, what God is doing in the Word is revealing Himself. Well, B, Jesus' authority, it extends beyond our outward behavior all the way down to our heart. Outwardly, the Pharisees compared themselves with others and they justified themselves because they did more. They went further than the average Jew. They were meticulous in keeping all the outward rules, but they were living before men and not before God who examines our thoughts and our motives. They were filled with pride and hypocrisy, which God hates. When they gave alms, they did it to be noticed by men. When they uttered long prayers, it was to impress other people as to just how spiritual they were. Now, they may have fooled others, but they could never fool God. And Jesus just rips off their mask of righteousness and exposes them for what they really are, detestable in the sight of God. Now, true, true religion is a matter of the heart before God. The, instance, the instant you get a glimpse of God in His absolute holiness, the light of His glory also shows you just how vile and filthy your own heart is before Him. That's what happened to Isaiah, remember? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And uh, when he, he, the first words out of his mouth is, Woe is me, for I am a man of an unclean lips, and I come from among a people of unclean lips. He saw God's holiness, and that merely exposed his sinfulness. That's how it's supposed to be. Rather than boasting in your good deeds and parading your supposed righteousness before others, you shrink back in fear of being instantly consumed. You despair of even being righteous enough to present yourself before God because you, just, you know just how deceitful and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says, that your heart really is. But folks, that is precisely where the gospel comes in. Because you realize that if you are to stand before God, you need a savior, you need a mediator, you need somebody between you and God. Because of your sin, you cannot stand there. David says, O oh Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? David understood. We can't without that mediator. Timothy tells us that there is one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So, you recognize that you need a Savior. You need a mediator. You need a righteousness other than your own because yours is simply insufficient. 
Well, Jesus is that Savior. He extends a free pardon to every sinner who repents and trusts in Him. He clothes that believing sinner with His perfect righteousness, reconciling us to God. I think I told you about that last week. It's just the best deal on earth, y'all. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. But He, God... Um, wait, how's it? Let's see. My mind's getting old, y'all. Yeah, Jeremy says, it happens. Here's, here's a, how old are you, Jeremy? Here's a 13-year-old school of me. It happens. Yes, it does. I'm learning that day. Uh, he, he, God, sent him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Uh, theologians call it the, the, the great exchange or the divine exchange. What do we give him? Our sins. What does he give us? His righteousness. Now, I'm a bargain hunter. If you know me, you know that's true. Caleb's sitting there. Caleb is laughing because he knows it's true. I'm a bargain hunter. All right? Uh, I bought Tyler clothes this week because they were on sale. Didn't I? Uh, so I'm a bargain hunter. This is the best bargain in the universe. Give your sins to Jesus and He'll give you His righteousness. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, in that new relationship with God, we learn to live not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who examines our hearts. Now, Jesus is saying if you're not living openly before God and judging your sin on the thought level, seeking to please God with your thoughts and your attitudes, as well as with your words and your deeds, then you're living as a Pharisee. You're not living as a disciple of Christ. Christians don't live to impress others with how spiritual they are. Christians live openly in the sight of God simply to please Him. So the first thing our text says is that God's kingdom comes in the person of Jesus, the King. Christianity is not a matter of following a bunch of outward standards. We get nailed for that as Baptists. That's just part of our heritage. We have been very strict on certain, let's just call them vices, where others don't see them as vices. Okay, but that's not what Christianity is about. We believe that's what the Bible, you know, enjoins us to do, but it's still, uh, that's, that's, that's kind of the mold that we are cut from. It's a matter of submitting ourselves to His authority, down to the heart level. Now, as our text shows, uh, that's not the only response. So point number two, two possible, response, two possible responses to Jesus' authority are one, to scoff at Him, and then two, to submit to Him. So A, some scoff at Jesus and His authority. All right? We tend to think that all that scoff at Jesus are outside the religious establishment. But the gospel accounts show us that there are many who put on a pretense of religiosity, but who scoff at the Savior. Now the word scoff literally means to turn up one nose uh, to someone. It's a term of utter contempt, of disregard. Why were these religious leaders scoffing at Jesus? It says they were listening to Him, 
And the verse before was about, I mean, the parable before was kind of about money and use of money. They're listening, but Luke says they were scoffing at him. Why were these religious leaders scoffing at him? It's very simple. And it applies to every individual who scoffs at him today. Whether that person, you know, purports to be a Christian or an atheist, it doesn't matter. This is why people scoff. Jesus convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. An evolutionist, they may protest, I don't believe the Genesis account of creation because it's not scientific nonsense. The reason the evolutionist doesn't believe in the Genesis account of creation is that if God spoke the universe into being, into existence, merely by His Word, then there are some pretty serious moral implications in that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means He is God. And I can't simply live my life however I choose. He has rights over me. Now, the Pharisees, they scoffed at Jesus because of a variety of sins. Two are mentioned here. First, they were lovers of money. Luke tells us that. They gave a lot to the temple, but their giving was done to impress men. Uh, It didn't impress God who looked at their heart. They were living for greed and not for God. Now, you don't have to be rich to fall into the trap of loving money. In fact, many who lack money love it just as much, if not more, than those who have money. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's talking to believers here who are in love with money. Now, the phrase desire to be rich, that points to a deep desire, points to an aim in life. If the bit of your life is to get rich, then you're exposing yourself to many spiritually destructive temptations. Do you know that greed is often uh, mentioned in the Bible in the same breath as sexual immorality? And yet, it is far more tolerated in the church than is sexual immorality. We tolerate TV preachers who flaunt their wealth and their luxurious lifestyles until they fall into sexual sin. Then we hold them accountable. But we should be just as intolerant of greed as we are of sexual immorality. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus warns, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Listen to this. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jeff Bezos got a lot of money, don't he? Bill Gates got a lot of money, don't he? Warren Buffett, men like this, got a lot of money. That verse right there. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's all going to go away. If you struggle with greed, as most of us do, let's be honest, I'll tell you a simple way to combat it. Give away everything except what you need to live on. 
That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. Giving is an antidote to greed. So anytime you're struggling with a greedy heart, just sit down and write a big fat check to God's work in whatever way He leads you. Try it and you will feel free inside. Meeting others' needs rather than trying to meet your own with something new that you probably don't need anyway. And you'll find that out shortly after you get it. And you'll think, okay, what's next on my list to try to make me happy? You won't find it except in Jesus. Well, the second sin that that Jesus confronts the Pharisees with was divorce. Okay, in Malachi 2.16, we're told that God hates divorce. Plain and simple, God hates divorce. Excuse me. He declared from the beginning that a man and wife become one flesh. Right? That's implying a lifelong union. But because of the hardness of man's heart, God permitted, not mandated, but permitted divorce. Many of the Pharisees, however, had taken God's permission for divorce in difficult situations and turned it into a virtual approval for divorce for almost any reason. In Jesus' day, there were two main Pharisaic schools. Rabbi Shammai's school held that divorce was allowable only on the grounds of immorality. If your spouse cheated on you, then you you could divorce. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, his school allowed divorce for many reasons, including something as trivial as a wife burning the meal. Now, Knowing the hardness of man's heart, why are somebody else, why are y'all, some of y'all touch papping your husbands? And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all understand that, but, but the truth is, uh, knowing the hardness of our hearts and the hardness of men back then, I think you can understand why Halil's school was much more popular. You could divorce your wife for almost any reason. But you know what? Jesus clearly cited with uh, Rabbi Shammai's school. Jesus is not giving the full biblical teaching on divorce here. Rather, he is showing us his authority by confronting the Pharisees with an area where they often dodged God's law through their loopholes while proclaiming to be faithful to it. He's saying that by playing loose with God's standard for marriage, they were committing adultery. Now, even though they could justify themselves before men, claiming that they were under the letter of the Mosaic law, what they were doing was detestable in the eyes of God. Now, don't forget the main point here. The reason people scoff at Jesus is not intellectuals. It's not because they think he's crazy or this, that. No, they're trying to dodge the high standards of God's word regarding sin. But if you justify your sin, even by claiming some biblical loophole, you are scoffing at Jesus, who knows your heart, by the way. And there is a a better alternative. Let's be here. Others submit to Jesus and to his authority. Now, Jesus refers to those who are forcing their way into the kingdom. This is a difficult phrase. Uh, The Greek verb can be either middle or passive voice. If it's passive... It could be translated like this. Everyone is urged insistently into the kingdom. But most commentators argue for the middle voice. 
This views the subject as participating in the results of the action. Here it means that each person takes the initiative to press his way into the kingdom. Now I believe contextually that is the better view. Now everyone doesn't mean everyone in Israel literally, but rather to the great multitudes of sinners who were flocking to hear Jesus and were responding to his message in contrast to the very few Pharisees who were responding. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, while you guys sit around scoffing, the people that you despise are literally stampeding into the kingdom. The phrase forcing his way into it, that implies that salvation requires strong desire, firm resolution, earnest effort and focus to obtain it. You simply cannot be indifferent and passive when the salvation of your soul is at stake. If you're not saved, nothing in life should matter to you more than how you can get saved. You're not going to accidentally get saved while you devote yourself to everything else under the sun but God and never devote any effort to understanding spiritual matters. Now let's make it clear, we're not saved by our efforts, only through faith in the blood of Jesus. But the mark of a person who has come to a genuine saving faith is a subsequent life of increasing submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our scoffing goes away, okay, and we begin to submit. Those who have entered His kingdom have come under His authority as King. They devote their lives, uh, you know, according to His Word, seeking to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In 1881, in the western town of Cranberry Gulch, California, they needed a teacher for their one-room schoolhouse. The last three teachers did not fare so well. That fare so well. They weren't able to deal with the rowdy students. One was in the graveyard. One lost an eye, and the third left before lunch on his very first day. Well, a slender man named Harry Flodo, he applied for the job. The person doing the hiring didn't think he would fare any better than the ones before him, but there wasn't any other applicant, so he got the job. Word spread, and the students were just relishing how they were going to get rid of this new victim. Well, the first day he showed up carrying just a traveling case. We might call it a little suitcase type thing. And one 18-year-old tough kid, he joked that, oh, he came prepared to take off when he found out how rowdy we are and he can't handle us. Well, ignoring him, Flodo went on inside and the others just followed, curious to see what he'd do next. He opened his bag, he took out a belt, and he buckled it around his waist. Next, he put three Colt revolvers there. Boom, boom, boom. And a Bowie knife. While the students watched, Flodo tacked a white card to the wall opposite his desk. All right. He walked back to his desk, spun around, took out the revolver, shot six shots. Into, you know, a spread of about the size of a silver dollar from across the room. Then he began walking and took out the Bowie knife. When he got about halfway there, he threw it, stuck it in the same one, pegged it to the wall. It's just quivering. Of course, the student's eyes are about to pop out of their head. Well, leaving it there as a reminder, Flodo took two more knives from his thing, stuck them in his belt, 
and started reloading his revolver. Then he ordered the 18-year-old who had made fun of him to ring the bell to signal the start of the class, which he did without saying a word. Okay, after the students uh, were all seated, Flodo cocked a revolver and announced, we will arrange the classes. Then he heard a whisper from behind him, and he whirled around and he drew his gun and said, no whispering allowed in here. I'll not, I'll not do so anymore, sir, the boy said. See that you don't, Flodo said. I never give a second warning. Within a month, Flodo was able to take down his weapons, and the students had learned to love him, but even more than that, to respect him. He ended up staying there two years as their teacher. Now, just as those, we, we chuckle at that, but we understand what was going on. They, they needed to learn some respect. Well, just as those students learned to respect the authority of that teacher, so we need to respect the absolute authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's son. He is God's king. We dare not scoff at him or his word that tells us how we should live. I hope you see that to question Jesus' authority in any way is the most risky thing to do. He is king and we simply must submit to him. And our lives will be better for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again just for a, a challenge from your word. Uh, we, we look at these Pharisees and we, we hear the word Pharisee and we go, oh, I'm not a Pharisee. I don't want to be like a Pharisee. But we see so much of ourselves in the Pharisees. And so, God, I pray that you would um, just convict our hearts this morning of whatever uh, Pharisee, Pharisaic tendencies might be there, whether it's to scoff at you and, and think that we know better. So we'll just bend your law here and there to accommodate of the lifestyle that we are seeking. God, I pray that you would help us to see the truth that Jesus is your son. He is the king. That kingdom is established. And Father, we are to simply submit. So God, do that on our behalf this morning. Uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I don't know where you're at on this continuum. Maybe you scoff at the Lord. Um, that's what the Pharisees were doing, and we learned some of the reason why. They were scoffing because they did not want to submit. It's like Jesus gives us two options, or Luke does in his presentation. You're either going to scoff at Jesus, or you're going to submit. Where are you this morning? If you're a scoffer, and you realize that you shouldn't be scoffing the creator of the universe, you know, you don't want to get to heaven and be wearing that t-shirt saying, yeah, I question authority. No. If, you, if, you, if you've come to realize that scoffing is not the answer, if you know that you need Jesus, I'm going to ask you to just come forward and talk to me as we begin singing in a minute. I'll share with you what Jesus says. and It's just a matter of faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll take that scoffing heart out and give you a heart of submission. Okay, I promise. He'll do it for you. He'll make you see uh, life through His eyes. What a difference, what a difference. If you're a believer this morning, we scoff as well. And it's simply where there's some area in Scripture, you know, maybe you've heard it from the pulpit, maybe from a Sunday school class, maybe you're just reading the Scripture and you see something, you go, I don't know about that. I don't know if I should, you know, if I'm going to live by that or not. That's awful tough. That's scoffing at Jesus. I encourage you not to do it. I encourage you to submit let the Lord penetrate. Let Him get down there. Let Him see the dark places of your heart.
expose them, and then, and, and then submit and say, okay, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow you in your word. That's the authority. Don't scoff at this authority. It is the ultimate authority. But we as believers do it probably daily. So just check your heart. God will speak to you where you need to submit rather than scoff. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.